Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, another horrific shooting on display for the world to watch here in the United States. At least at last week's Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade. Nick and I with the latest on everything that happened out in Kansas City last week. If you missed this, former President Donald Trump ordered to pay $354 million dollars. And he can't conduct business in New York for three years. So he does like any good businessman and he turns to selling sneakers. Nick and I on whether or not you should cop a pair of the former Air Force 45s. Plus later on the program, Alex Clement, G-Zero Media correspondent. He comes on the pod. He breaks down the latest on the war in Ukraine. The recent death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Alex has been covering that for a while. He even interviewed the documentarian that did that CNN documentary on Navalny. If you don't know anything about this, you've never heard of Alexei Navalny. You you didn't know Putin had any opposition over there, as normal dictators do. Alex is going to break it all down uh, in our final segment there. Um, Housekeeping notes, as always, on your episode of Back Your Plays out there. Rich breaks down NBA All-Star break, the trade deadline, what's happening right now with some of the big teams in the top four in the East and West, as Jonathan Marshall from up in uh, Hartford joins him, a local sports reporter up there that covers the Celtics. You can go check out an all-new episode of Back Your Play with Q over on LeonMediaNetwork.com or listen to it wherever you get your pods. Now I say hello to Mr. Savary. Nick, you know, we always do this. We say hello to each other. We're going to dive into this Kansas City thing uh, in just a second. 
Um, and I kind of want to funnel it in because, you know, uh, uh, you and I always text. We know how each other is doing. And for the basic humanity of the show, we always know how each other's doing. But when I saw what happened last week in Kansas City, you know, you and I are both Raiders fans. Uh, we hate the Chiefs more than anything in this world. We dislike Chiefs fans, but you never want to see something like this. I mean, this is outside of the scope of sports and you see, you know, a, a parade for your rival and something like that happen where the parade is just wrapping up and, you know, two kids are out there with weapons that looked ridiculous on camera, at least from some of the footage of the tackle that one of the good Samaritans made on one of these kids as police were trying to chase people down. One woman, unfortunately, lost her life. I want you to listen real quick before I say hello to you to how it was covered locally over in Kansas City on the Fox affiliate over there. Take a listen to this. This just into our newsroom. Again, two juveniles have been charged with crimes connected to the shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl rally. This is what authorities have said today. Now, a news release from the Jackson County Family Court said the juveniles are being detained in the county's juvenile detention center on gun-related and resisting arrest charges. Uh, the release saying that it is anticipated that additional charges are expected in the future as the investigation by police continues. No further information was released. We do know that a mother of two was killed in Wednesday shooting. 22 other people were injured. Uh, I mentioned before about one young lady, unfortunately, uh, a DJ, a local DJ, at one of the radio stations there in Kansas City, lost her life. I believe she was taking her kids to the parade. Uh, the majority of the folks that were injured in the shooting happened to be uh, younger folks. Um, by the way, the, the deceased was Lisa Lopez Galvan, like I mentioned, 43 years old, local DJ for A Taste of Tejano, which is a Tex-Mex music show on the community radio station out there, KKFI. A um, couple of folks and her son was actually shot in the leg, too, but he was recently discharged from the hospital. Jeez, um, man. You know, and the other thing is, as you and I are recording this, Nick, um, CNN had some breaking news earlier today of another shooting that happened in Minnesota where two police officers and a firefighter were fatally shot uh, in Burnsville, Minnesota, as they were responding around 1.50 in the morning central time to a domestic disturbance. And there was like kids inside the house that were being held at gunpoint by somebody. And this person opened fire on police, several guns, large amounts of man, ammunition, multiple firearms at the home. You know, I'm going to give my takes in a second because I've said this before. And if this is your first time tuning into the show, thanks for hopping by. Thanks for stopping by. Excuse me. Uh, let's see if you stay with us on this train, because I don't I don't get the obsession with guns. I really don't. And I'm a I'm a greater good guy, you know, again, I'll equate it to anything in my life right now that I truly love. And if the government's like we need it back because it'll save lives, take it back. Like, I really don't care. I don't have time for this. And I say this as my sister and my father in law both obsess over their guns the other day when they were talking to each other about what AR-15s they own. Like, I, I, I can't stand it. I hate it. It's one of the worst things in the world to me. But it's an obsession here. And we can't stop people from their freedoms, blah, 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 blah. You know the rest. What says Nick Saveri of what happened not only in Kansas City, but I just played for you, um, you know, a little bit of, of the sound there from the way it was covered locally on the, on the affiliate side. And then 
also, you know, what happened in Minnesota, we, we just, we just keep going around in circles, man. And, and we have to start our show all the time when this happens, because this is terrible. It's, it's an indictment and not one second has been spent specifically. And I don't want to make this an R and D thing. I, I know you will in a sec, but the Republican side, not one second has been spent on guns or gun control, except for the former president mentioning how much he did for the NRA during his presidency. Nothing has been spent in any of these. I'm sick of it. None, nothing has been spent time-wise in any of these debates, even when there was a mass shooting that happened in Perry, Iowa, where a couple of people had died. And, and I believe it was at the local school or something like that. One of the principals passed away. Nothing. We got no questions, nobody being asked it on the campaign trail, not one iota of it. Don't care. Wash, rinse, repeat. Just another statistic. What says you, Mr. Severi? You know, we had and we had, you know, across the aisle um, policy created a law, right? Like it helped to, you know, to try to address the gun problem in this country. But we're still seeing that this is still an issue. You know, we still lead the country. We still lead the world, you know, in gun related deaths. And you always come back to why, you know, and it's this when I talk about why here, this is where I get to sort of not necessarily sound like a Democrat or a Republican. But like there's a conversation to be had about what and as you talked about it, like what is our obsession with guns? Like the situation in Kansas City, it sounds like from you know the stories I've read that there was a altercation between some young folks, you know, toward the end of the parade and it led to gunfire. So of course the question I'm going to ask is where are we, where it seems like the only way to resolve an issue between two young people is, is violence of this magnitude. Like I grew up at the time, let's like much like you that, if, you know, you had an issue with someone like you used your hands, like nobody was cowardly enough to go get their peace and have to go settle it that way. You know, the, the ironic thing about Republicans is that we'll see the Republican strategy has been to 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 do a couple of things right now. It's the stoke fear. And this is what Republicans do well. So in an election year, we see clips of shoplifting. We see sh we see clips of you know major cities where we constantly you know build up the narrative of a growth in violence, where in actually statistics tell us that violent you know crime is actually down like nationally. And in most of the cities that are being talked about. But there's this idea that you know, like crime is a problem. The same out of the same mouths of these people is never the conversation of maybe we should do something about the guns. Like what kind of imagine the world we live in where people have less access to these weapons and still try to go cause mayhem. It looks a lot different. That's why I can't take Republicans seriously when they talk about being serious about crime and law and order, because you don't want to deal with the tool of death here, which is which is the gun. You know, we parse, you know, well, what kind of gun laws can we have? Can we have background checks? You know, most of the time, these folks that get the access to these guns are not people who are going to come up on a background check. The question we should be asking ourselves is, why is it so much easier to get a gun as always, then it is to register your car or even sometimes try to register to vote. You know, we make access to weapons one of the most easiest things to do in this country. And it begs the question, you know, when did the Second Amendment become more important than the other nine? You know, Missouri ranks 38th amongst the 50 states when it comes to gun law strength. 
according to everytownforgunsafety.org, uh, the gun control advocacy and gun violence prevention nonprofit says Missouri, which is among the 10 states with the most firearm-related deaths, lacks any of the foundational gun violence prevention laws, including passing background checks and or purchase permitting, secure gun storage requirements, requiring a concealed carry permit, extreme risk laws, and rejecting shoot-first laws. Shoot-first laws, people that don't know, allows people to shoot and kill in public, even if they can walk, if they can safely walk away from the situation, which I believe is kind of what happened here to Nick's point uh, in the shooting. You know, just real quick, when I was mentioning before about this isn't an R&D thing, like this is a right and wrong thing. If you go to gunviolencearchive.org backslash, I want, I want people to do this. Okay. So you can always see in parallel what Nick and I are looking at. Go gunviolencearchive.org backslash last dash 72 dash hours. In there, you'll see all of the violent crime that is happening right now via guns, victims injured, victims killed, suspects arrested, et cetera, et cetera. And just in the last 72 hours, again, this is all going to be refreshed as of this recording. So you'll probably see different things, but you see something happening in Portland, something happening in Humboldt, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Florence, South Carolina, West Monroe, Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana, Chicago, Illinois, Memphis, Tennessee, Jacksonville, Florida, Bridgeport, Texas, Santa Clarita, California. Those are all red and blue, folks. That's all red and blue. So this is not an R&D thing now about the problem itself. About the solution, as Nick outlined, yes, we have seen and we've had Democrats on this show explain ones that were former military members that have carried weapons of mass destruction and war. And they're like, normal civilians shouldn't have that. But when you look at the actual problem, it doesn't have a red or blue association. It's happening everywhere. And we just don't want to do something about it. Yes, Mrs. Rare, one, one more point for you. Yeah, you know, I'm reminded of, you know, recently there was a decision made, you know, the mother of the shooter in Oxford, in Oxford, Michigan, you know, student, as we all recall, we had, I believe at the time, uh, Frank Figlusi on, you know, former FBI agent to talk about that particular shooting. And one of the things we learned was that the parents had actually purchased the gun for the shooter. Now, there's a direct link between the parents and the shooter in this case. I can understand why a jury would find the mom guilty and soon to be the dad. The dad currently is right now trying to get the case held in a different county uh, for whatever reason. Good luck with that. So there's a direct line there. It does make me think, because in the case of the, in this particular case in Kansas City, the two, the two shooters are not named. They're both juveniles, which I'll be honest with you, there's a part of me that is okay with their names getting put out there because I want their families to be known for what's happened. I go so far as to say that if you are someone in this country responsible for a shooting, and if you are below, you know, below the age of 18, say, I think your parents should be punished for that. Because obviously, as a country, we can't get this right about guns. So I think we need to elevate this. Like if you are reckless enough to you know, be responsible for a shooting like this, then I want other people to serve time alongside you. Maybe in a prison cell, you and your parents can get this right, because clearly out in the open, you cannot. You know what? It's not a terrible idea, right? Some accountability and responsibility for all this. And we're seeing that play out in what happened in Oxford, Michigan. Nick, today's episode is presented, as always, by our friends over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Since 2009, their passion has always been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world 
roasted fresh to order. I got my coffee snob here, Nick Saveri. Nick, tell these people, coffee snob it up here. Tell these people why fresh roasted coffee is so good and why they're the official sponsor of Can We Please Talk? You know, often the best cup of coffee that you're ever going to have is the one you can, you can make from home. And you need good quality coffee to do that. And that's what fresh roasted coffee offers. You know, between single origin, between blends, flavors, anything on the coffee spectrum they've got. But more importantly, and I can't stress this enough, often when you purchase coffee, you don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many different varieties, so many different opportunities, so many different things you could choose from. And Fresh Roast of Coffee just gives you a very simple questionnaire and just says, hey, figure out what your cup, what your coffee cup is. Figure out what blend works for you. I've gotten some single origin recommendations, so is Mike, and that's influenced everything. And what they recommend, you can get in a Keurig cup, the way Mike takes it. You can take it in the way I do it, which is typically through a French press, or you can get it for a percolator. Whatever coffee machine you've got, they've got you covered. But more importantly, just a huge variety and a way to learn more about coffee itself. And all of this is available at freshroastedcoffee.com on their site. One cup is all it takes to fall in love with fresh roasted coffee, but you get a discount for being a listener of Can We Please Talk. Enter in the promo code Can We Please Get 20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. This episode is presented by the good folks over at Nerd Focus. New energy drink sponsor on the show, Nick. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you lack focus and concentration, motivation? Do you need something to boost your stamina and strength? I do. You know, coffee coffee isn't enough, so I'm always looking for other options. Well, I got something for you, Nick, that's going to boost your stamina and strength. It's going to enhance your focus and concentration. We're going to ramp up your motivation. We're going to provide alertness and stimulation. We're going to even improve your mood, Nick, which a lot of people on this on the comments are going to be happy with. I got the original Think Drink infused with powerful nootropics, performance-boosting nutrients, Click the link in our show notes right now to get a special offer on Nerd Focus beverages for being a Can We Please Talk listener. Nerd Focus, there's a nerd in everyone. Not much more that we can add to that, Nick. We've covered it ad nauseum all the time these shootings happen. It's wash, rinse, repeat here. For our folks that listen to us across the pond in Europe, in Australia, wherever you may be listening to it, to us and you're not located in the United States of America, you know that this is a, a vicious cycle and circle. So we'll have more of these and we'll offer more thoughts and prayers and we won't do anything about it because we'll just keep talking about it. Speaking of talking about it, let's talk about what happened last week to the former president of the United States, who now has to pay more than $350 million, 350, and bars him from running businesses in the state of New York for three years in this civil business fraud trial that happened uh, over the weekend or Friday, I should say, where the decision came down. If you don't know anything about it, you haven't heard anything about the case, take a listen to this. We begin tonight with some breaking news and the historic ruling in the civil fraud trial against former President Donald Trump. A judge ordered Trump to pay more than $350 million in penalties and barred him from serving as an officer or director of any New York company for three years. Today's decision comes months after he was found liable for falsifying business records in order to get better terms on loans and insurance. It is a major victory for New York State Attorney General Letitia James, who first sued the former president back in 2022. Well, tonight, Trump called the ruling, quote, 
a total sham. The judge obviously also ordered the continued appointment of an independent monitor and the installation of an independent director of compliance for the Trump company. So, uh, and, and by the way, this is, again, these are civil matters. What happened with E. Jean Carroll, $83 million. What happened in this one, another civil matter, not being able to conduct business. But there is a criminal trial upcoming in New York again. That's the March 25th uh, case that starts up under Alvin Bragg, the DA there, who's charging him again with falsifying business records, which it can be a felony uh, for the former president. Um, Nick, we saw this come down. We're going to get into a second how the president plans to pay for this with something you can put on your feet. Um, but we saw $350 plus million, you heard them say there, $83 million before. You and I were joking, joking back and forth recently. I said, $83 million he's got. If you added a zero to it, it's going to be tough to pay, especially the way courts ask you to pay. And, you know, there's a little bit of a vig on that, too, if you don't uh, start making payments. So now we get this decision and now you total it up and it's, you know, uh, close to four hundred and forty five million dollars that's owed by the former president. There was another suit, actually, I believe a year or so ago where five million dollars he had to pay as well. Um, what do you make of all this? Because don't forget, He's paying these lawyers, one we just had on recently in our last episode. He's paying these folks. And I don't know if anybody's ever used a lawyer or, or been in a high profile case. Lawyers are expensive and they don't come cheap. So he's got to pay legal fees. He's got to pay the judgments that are ruled in these cases. And like I said, he's got defense attorneys right now working criminal cases for him that are going to be coming up. And we're going to get into one in a sec with what's happening in Georgia with Fannie Willis over there. What do you make of when the decision came down on this civil suit, the amount, the fact that he can't do business in New York? What do you make of it all? As someone who professionally works with the city of New York in matters of funding in the education space, I, and I joke with you about this the other day, New York City is going to get its money. New York City can sometimes be hard to pay you. <laughs> so it will work. It doesn't quite work the other way around. If the city wants its money, it's going to get it. It's always interesting because in, in civil trials like this, you know, there's a question of, you know, can you keep appealing this? And I guess the Trump team could, but there's something that tells me that, that New York City is not like your average Joe. Like they'll get their money one way or the other, which does go to what we heard happen at the Phil at the you know Philly sneaker con, which we'll get into at some point. Um, yeah, it's just it's just an oh for the president. Like it, it's a very it's a standout decision that's saying that, you know, these inflated numbers to get, you know, interest rates or whatever um, is illegal. And like, that's what he got caught on. It was interesting because, you know, the AG Letitia James, you know, we had we had on Ellie Honig on this show a while back, CNN legal analyst. And one thing that came up in that conversation with Ellie was around, you know, sometimes our AGs putting forward a very political agenda. Like, are they careful of what they say during press conferences and interviews to give off any type of indication that they have a political bias, that they're not just focusing on the law, but are they doing this for some kind of political vendetta? And I remember being a little critical and concerned about, you know, whether the attorney general could get you know caught with that. And to her credit, that was not the case. This was pretty open and shut. Um and now Trump's got to have to deal with it. I was surprised that it's only three years. Um, 
you know, I did wonder if this would be a longer term where he cannot, you know, do any business in New York City. And would even New York, would even the city of New York possibly force him to liquefy, you know, Trump Tower and some of his other business holdings to immediately pay back New York? But, you know, we shall see. One funny thing that came out of this decision is that, you know, in terms of, um, interestingly, truck drivers. So a story that came in from The Independent, um, you know, talked about truck drivers that were going to protest and not bring deliveries to New York City because they were so outraged um, about this decision. And I think one particular driver by the name of Chicago Ray put a video on on uh, Twitter, you know, saying that I and 10 other drivers will not make our runs to New York City, you know, to show pro- to show support. Which, of course, is laughable. Like, don't make the run. That's fine. But someone's going to like you'll lose your job over this. And and seriously, between January 6th and this recent decision by this idiot truck driver, how many people want to lose their professions and their livelihoods because of a rich guy who really couldn't care less about you people? That's the story of Donald Trump. It said here that Donald Trump and the entities he controls, uh, obviously, valuable properties, office buildings, hotels, golf courses, Acquiring and developing such properties required huge amounts of cash. Accordingly, the entities borrowed from other banks and lenders, and then the lenders required personal guarantees, which were based on statements of financial condition compiled by the accountants that Trump engaged. And these accountants created compilations, I'm using air quotes for people not watching us on YouTube, that based on the data submitted by the Trump entities, allowed him to borrow more at lower rates. And so he submitted blatantly false financial data to the accountants which resulted in these fraudulent financial statements. So make your own legal judgments on that. And so now the former president has to pay $354 million, $83 million in the E. Jean Carroll suit. I think he's got an idea on how to pay for it, Nick. And it rhymes with sneakers. Take a listen to this. So the really nice thing is we have lines, and I want to thank Chase, and I want to thank Alan. But we have lines going all around the block. They're going all around this block. They've never seen anything like this one. I just want to tell you, you know, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I have some incredible people that work with me on things, and they came up with this. And this is something I've been talking about for 12 years, 13 years. And I think it's going to be a big success. Your influencers have been very positive. They've been real influencers, and they love it, and they love what we've done. That's the real deal. That's the real deal. So, yes, the former president introduced at SneakerCon there in Philadelphia a brand new line of sneakers. That's right. These are called for I'm not making this up. This is really true. Producer Tim did not believe it. He thought it was a joke when it was trending online. They're called the Never Surrender High Tops. You can get a pair of sneakers over at GetTrumpSneakers.com. If he wants to be a sponsor on this show, I'll promote it even more. But I will, I do want to say one thing before you go, Nick, before you give your take on the sneakers, just real quick for the people. When I texted you about these sneakers and you said, I need to see a picture of them. What was your response when I sent you a picture of them right now? Just say your response and that's it. What was your response when I texted you a picture of them? I'll be honest. I the first thing I thought of was when I think of fraudulent sneakers that got released, I was reminded of the, you know, the the big baller brand. So I remember that story because that shoe came out, wasn't really good looking. And, you know, there were sales through the roof, right? No one ever got a pair. 
few people ever got a pair. So I thought about that con job by LeVar Ball. And I thought about this by the foreign president. So I did a side-by-side comparison. And I said to you, you know what? They're not that bad. Thank you. Compared to, compared to the big baller brand shoes, not that bad. Not, not a bad move by 45. Right. Well, that, finally, we got to it uh, because there. first off, I don't I would never wear a pair of these. And we're going to get into some of the takes of some of the folks uh, on social media. We've seen some people call these the Homelander 45s. We've seen some people call these the January 6s, which is pretty funny. Um, I, there's a bunch out there. Four hundred dollars for for the low, low price of three ninety nine. These sneakers could be yours at GetTrumpSneakers.com. And again, nobody knows selling uh, merchandise like Donald Trump, who sold steaks at a sharper image once upon a time. You can look that up. That's an actual true thing that Trump steaks were showed, sold at sharper image. All jokes aside, you made a really good point to me via the text chain about why he would do this. And I'm going to turn to you on this because few people may not know this about you, but you are a sneakerhead. And it's so funny, by the way, seeing some of these articles now having to define what sneakerheads are. Uh, they're just people that own sneakers. They're just sneaker enthusiasts, folks. I mean, Jesus, I mean, what is going on here? But like I was saying, I would turn to you because I am not a sneakerhead. I have the same pair of Sam Smith Adidas white sneakers. And when they break, I just buy the same pair of Sam Smith Adidas white sneakers to replace those. So these sneakers could make a dent in something that you brought to my attention. I would love for you to share it with our audience here because we got the jokes off. They're $400. That's a ripoff. I'm sorry. It's a ripoff. Any sneaker above $100, in my opinion, is a ripoff. Not just Trump sneakers. Any sneaker, period, point blank, end of sentence. These are hideous. I said, this is what I expected Apollo Creed to wear when he fought Rocky, uh, when he fought Drago in Russia. Like these are the same type of sneakers that I expected uh, Creed to wear. And shout out to Carl Weathers, RIP buddy. But um, when you saw these, you texted me something that I thought was really, really, really smart in terms of what Trump is doing this election and the type of folks that buy sneakers that he's trying to target. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just another, it's a group of young people. You know, trying to this effort of trying to be hip, you know, trying to connect with young, some young voters um, in this way. I mean, but it's funny that because you go to, you know, Philadelphia sneaker convention or sneaker con, that's not an audience of people who are going to, you know, be interested. You know, but if the perception of the Trump team is, you know, we potentially could get a majority of young black voters, particularly, you know, young black men, that may potentially work in the president's favor. I've said this, you know, I've, I've said this to Mike privately. I'll put this out here. This is black male voters, along with white women, are the two groups I pay the most attention to. You're going into this election. Um, there's a variety of reasons why I say that. I mean, white women, 53 percent voted for Trump in 2016. Right. Despite the grab by the you know what, um, the track record of being just horrible toward women. And yet 53 percent of white women. You know, went ahead and supported the guy. You know, black male voters, I'm curious because I've never really had the sense that black men have been the biggest fan of, you know, now Vice President Kamala Harris. We've seen people like Charlemagne the God, influencers who've come out, Killer Mike, who who are not so willing to see the benefit or the or recommend or you know take necessarily Biden's side. And 
I've always been curious, does that demographic potentially swing one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, I'll go to it's a it's a while back, but there was a story back at NBC News. Headline simply reads, black men shift slightly toward Trump in record numbers polls show. And this was based on exit polls. You know, and the sub subheading reads most black men supported Biden, but overall Democrats have been losing black male support since 2008, according to NBC exit poll data. So, yeah, I remembered stories like that because, you know, what we see in every poll is that black women overwhelmingly vote Democrat, overwhelmingly support the current president. But the black male vote could shift. I don't think if I'm a betting person, I think in the end, Biden carries that carries the majority of black male vote. But that could be a populace where the former president could siphon votes away. And that could play a significant role. Now, I'll let you all read the article as to why that may be the case. But honestly, and not that I look at people like Killer Mike or Charlemagne as being, you know, necessarily like spoke people for um, for black men entirely. Like in general, I don't look at any particular person and say, well, they're in, you know, they're the speaker of their of their group of people. That's that's naive. But I think about people like Cornell West, who decided to become an independent, who's critical of Barack Obama, has been critical of Joe Biden. And there's been prominent black men that have come out and have said that they've seen that they've even been sympathetic. Let's look at Van Jones, for example, CNN, you know, with the former president's son-in-law. It just seems like there's more complexity and a willingness to hear the Trump side out than we've seen from black women. And that fascinates me. Now, we're joking a little bit about the sneaker thing, but you have to understand that you know, this is a person who wants, let's, folks, if you listen to this episode, and thank you when you do, go back and play two minutes ago what we just talked about, three minutes ago, just got found guilty against the city of New York for fraud, is now putting out $400 sneakers, was famously on a TV show where his phrase to contestants was, you're fired. Folks, this is not a serious person. And I've said this from the beginning when Donald Trump ran for office in 2015. If you live in the tri-state area, everything I just described to you, go ahead and also, by the way, include Trump University and Trump Stakes. It's a buffoon. This is not a serious person and somehow has managed to co-opt the Republican Party, which is fascinating to me because it takes the most unintelligible, simple-minded of folks to look at the Trump campaign and say, yeah, that's a guy who's got my back. A person, I will remind you all, who could care less about the average American. His track record has never been to be pro-America. It's never been to be pro-labor. And it astounds me (laughs) that people possibly in the sneaker world could look at Donald Trump and say, yeah, I'm sympathetic there. There's a conversation to be had about like what Democrats may be doing wrong in their messaging or what their outreach failures may be. But to point it to Donald Trump and say, well, that's the better option. I will never for the life of me understand that for someone who's spent so much time living in a part of the country where Trump news has been in front of me really since the late 80s. And I've never seen this person as a serious character. You know, I saw the sneaker thing. I laughed because, you know, immediately what came to my mind is, well, what were the alternative (laughs) names for this shoe? Because. The Victory 45s, which were more like a athletic shoe, more of a casual shoe, almost like a running shoe, which is ironic considering who it's supposed to be about. Right. Um, you guys can look at the pictures yourself of the former president. But believe it or not, on this show, we found 
the five alternate, five most popular alternate names for the Trump shoe. Am I somewhat joking that we found it, that we did the hard due diligence? Maybe a little bit. But the five names that came across for the shoe, failed names, did not work. I like some of them. Or as follows, number five on this list, with a Reebok pump up your numbers for the inauguration attendance. I personally am a Reebok pump fan. I thought that was actually a pretty good idea. Number four, the Air Magas. Also big fan. Number three, this just came out recently in light of the settlement or the, the what was found in the New York courts, the Air Fraud 350s. I thought that was a pretty good one. Uh, number two has already been said. This is a bit of a anticlimactic one. The Jan 6s. I thought that was a good one, too. But my personal favorite at number one, and if you were an old school sneakerhead, you will pick this one up. And I will explain it to you anyway, because Mike is clearly not. The Confifi weapon. Now, folks, a little disclaimer here. The Confifi, of course, the Converse weapon, which was most famously worn by Matt Johnson and Larry Bird of different you know, colors for the shoe. And there's that. So five failed names, one of which the Jan 6 is leaked early, but the other four I thought were really good that we did not go with. And unfortunately, we got stuck with Never Surrender 45s, which I just like most things. Again, Trump stakes. Just a total failure of marketing by the president, former was, president. Was the, were those the real names? Was that a real? Li- now I really don't know if they were. We leave it there because now I really don't know, folks. You could look them up. By the way, I do want to give him. Oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. I want to give him a piece of credit here because the sneakers were. There was like Nick said, there were two sneakers. One that was priced at three hundred ninety nine dollars online, and then there was an athletic shoe. Uh, which featured a, a T and the number 45 on the sides that were priced at $199. And I just explained to you that I buy my shoes at Famous Footwear and I don't spend over 100 bucks. So you want to spend your money on buying uh, you know, the Never Surrenders, the Jan 6s, whatever it is, uh, that's your call. I wouldn't do it if I were you. We leave it there when we come back after the break. Our buddy Alex Clement from G-Zero Media stops by. going to talk about the latest in the Russia-Ukraine war, Everything that happened recently with the death of Alexei Navalny. Alex, when we come back after the break. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. 
How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right. Just like ESPN turns to Adrian Wojnarowski for all their latest NBA breaking news, we turn to our reporter on the inside, the man who speaks Russian and has covered the country for forever, our buddy Alex Clement over at G-Zero Media. Alex, Mike, and Nick, thank you so much for hopping on the pod again with us. Good to be here, as always. Alex, you know, uh, there was so much to get to. You and I have been texting over the weekend after the death of Alexei Navalny that happened uh, in Russia at, at a prison. I want you to kind of explain that to our audience, the latest with what's happening in the war. We're going to get into Tucker Carlson and if he's somehow lost at a McDonald's in Moscow right now. But on a serious front, let's get into the first thing, because Navalny's death and CNN was replaying the documentary over this past weekend. I know you spoke to the actual filmmaker who made that documentary once upon a time. Can you kind of for our audience just explain who Alexei Navalny is? Maybe they saw this. A critic of Putin's died. Uh, you know, I thought all of them die. Right. Because Putin has been killing a lot of his critics. Just right. kind of explain what Alexei Navalny stood for in Russia as an opposition leader, his death and what he was facing when he was in prison. Some of the charges, people don't even know why he was in prison and why he went back. Right. So, um, well, just, just to kind of start it off, just so people have an understanding of what it means that Alexei Navalny has died. Alexei Navalny was the most prominent um, and certainly charismatic and outspoken um, critic and opponent of Vladimir Putin. Uh, that doesn't mean he was widely popular in Russia, which I'll get to in a minute. Doesn't mean he was a perfect angel of a person, which I will also get to in a minute. Um, but the, 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 the headline is uh, the last great hope of the Russian uh, opposition uh, is now gone uh, with the death. I would I would say with the murder of um, of Alexei Navalny. Who was Alexei Navalny? Um, in brief, he was a uh, trained as a lawyer, uh, quite a young guy, forty seven years old, um, when when he when he was killed last week. Um, he was trained as a lawyer, and about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, um, he started a foundation that basically was focused on exposing corruption in the Russian elite, um, and. A lot of people have tried to do that, and a lot of people have done it. Very few people have done it with the kind of social media savvy and panache and humor and charisma that Alexei Navalny was able to bring uh, to this issue. Um, he also had dalliances with hardcore nationalist elements in Russia. Uh, early in his career, he said some extremely problematic things about Muslims and immigrants from Central Asia. Uh, he was not a sort of cuddly liberal Democrat, uh, 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 you know, in, in the way that the West likes to think of its dissidents, right? He was a highly complicated and problematic figure in a highly complicated and problematic country. Um, he was at the height of his power around 2012. Uh, when he and a couple of other uh, opposition figures were able to get hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people into the street uh, in the largest protests in Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they were focused, again, particularly on corruption, right? His slogan was, this country is being run by a party of crooks and thieves. Um, and he, uh, you know, was quite popular. And uh, actually, he ran for mayor of Moscow in 2013 and did decently well with all the odds obviously stacked against him. 
Um, but it's worth pointing out that outside of Moscow and outside of St. Petersburg and outside of this kind of more educated cosmopolitan elite, um, Alexei Navalny was not hugely popular in Russia. Uh, if you look at opinion polling of what Russians thought of him, uh, the, the majority of Russians, if they had even heard of him at all, uh, said that they didn't approve of his activities, right? Um, some Russians haven't just don't know who he is uh, in the first place. Um, and I think that's a function of a couple of things. First of all, the, the Russian media has been stacked against Alexei Navalny for a long time. Uh, most Russians, by the way, uh, get their news from television. Two thirds of Russians get their news primarily from television. That's the opposite of what we have here in the US where two thirds of people get their information primarily online. And the state, the television in, in Russia is controlled. So the messaging around Navalny has been to suppress him uh, a lot. Um, the uh, His most prominent followers are sort of cosmopolitan liberals who have mostly left the country now. Um, so he, he, it's important to note that although he was popular in the West, he, he wasn't widely popular in Russia. Still, he posed a significant threat to Putin. Um, and I think that was for two reasons. One. He was not a cuddly, as I said, he was not a sort of liberal Democrat who was from the 90s, uh, you know, era of Russia, who was really pro-Western and kind of, you know, a liberal Democrat type. Those people were totally discredited by the chaos and humiliations of the 90s. Navalny couldn't be painted as one of those people. He was younger, he's from a different generation, and his politics were not about trying to be like the West. His politics were about these people in power are screwing you and they're screwing all of us and they're making Russia a weaker country for it, right? So he had this very like nationalistic kind of perspective and he was zeroing in on corruption, right? And those are two things that Putin did not want people focusing on. He does not want people focusing on corruption, corruption and he does not want people who can, you know, craft a nationalistic message. That's Putin's job. It's Putin's job to be the nationalist in Russia. He doesn't want someone else doing that. So on several occasions, you know, he was arrested. And of course, in 2020, which your, your listeners may know, he was poisoned at an airport in Siberia. Uh, he was flown out of the country to recover in Germany. Um, and then while he was in Germany, uh, he and his team figured out that the Kremlin had basically ordered his poisoning. In fact, there's an incredible scene in the documentary that you mentioned, which is called Navalny, which won an Oscar last year. Last year it was directed by Daniel Rohr, who I, as you mentioned, I interviewed. Um, there's an incredible scene in the documentary where Navalny gets a, a Russian security agent to, he pranks the guy and pretends that he's the guy's boss. If you can find a clip of this from the movie, it's worth dropping into the pot because it's an amazing scene. He pretends to be this guy's boss and he calls him up and he's like, hey, this is your boss. I need to talk to you about something. Tell me about what happened at that airport in Siberia. And the guy basically spills the beans on the whole thing. He's like, yeah, you know, we tried to, we, you know, we put the poison in his underwear. It didn't quite work. You know, I don't know how he survived. Sorry, whatever. Right. Gets the guy to admit, right, a Russian security services official to admit that they tried to poison him. So anyways, he's, fly, he's, this is, he's in Germany. Then he decides when he's healthy again to go back to Russia. Everybody says, you're crazy. If you go back to Russia, they will arrest you. They will throw you in prison for the rest of your, of, of your life. Of course, that's exactly what happened. He showed up in Russia. He was jailed for three or four years on extremism charges, something totally trumped up. And then for good measure, they added another 19 years uh, last year. They put him in some of the most severe solitary confinement you can imagine, Arctic prisons, the gulag. Your, your listeners can imagine what that's like. Um, and then last Friday, we got the news that um, 
that he was that he he had died under mysterious circumstances. Whether it was a slow motion murder or Putin called someone up and said, "It's Friday, February sixteenth. You're supposed to kill this guy." We'll never know, but the result is clear. The, the, the Putin system killed this guy because he was a threat to Putin a potential threat to Putin, even if at the moment he wasn't widely popular. And I think the upshot of the whole thing is that the Russian opposition has lost what you call in sports terms, a generational talent. It will be almost impossible in the short term to replace Alexei Navalny uh, for the Russian opposition. Listen, this is why Nick and I started this show because a, a breakdown like that about, again, like you just said, a figure that's popular in the West, or at least known to people that follow foreign policy and geopolitics, but somehow in his own country, even in your article, you said there's like a quarter of people that don't know who he is because they yeah. get their news consumption from media. So, so many different twists and turns. I appreciate you explaining to that. I, I do want to get into now what's actually happening, what's been at the forefront for the news uh, folks here in the U.S. about the war and the latest that's happening in Ukraine, as Vladimir Putin and, and his soldiers continue advancements, I saw a recent article from Al Jazeera that said something about Russia had taken uh, full control of a Ukrainian town. And I'm not going to pronounce it because I'm going to butcher the pronounce, pronunciation. I think it's Avdika, but Avdivka. Yep, yep, Avdivka. Yep, yep. There we go. Yep. Okay. So my slight Russian uh, used on uh, some women is not working. So anyway, Alex, um, in, in all seriousness now, the, the, the war right now, the way it's being treated in news media here in the West is very C-block. I was telling you this earlier. It's very like, here's serious, here's serious, and then here's, you know, kind of semi-serious. Like, it's not really getting covered as much as what's happening in Gaza, the hostage stuff. And then, obviously, we have primaries coming up here on the GOP side in the U.S. So you, can you kind of take our audience in terms of what's happening with the advancement? And obviously, there's some stuff with President Biden and, and Ukraine funding for aid. What's the latest on the war right now, at least with, with Russia advancing and taking capture of a Ukrainian city? So the um, look, the, the, the phenomena that you're talking about with Western media is this uh, dreaded Ukraine fatigue is what people talked about a year ago. They said, you know, the longer this war goes on, the more people are going to get tired. You know, people's attention spans are short. Uh, there are other issues that get people much more riled up. I mean, nothing gets people's attention and, you know, uh, outrage more than anything having to even remotely to do with Israel and Palestine, right? So, like, that's just drawn people's attention. But I think it's also because the, um, the ground war in Ukraine has become something close to a stalemate, right? Um, you know, early in the war, Russia made big gains. Then Ukraine pushed them back. Then Russia came back a little bit. Then Ukraine was um, starting for a number of months to, to wage this uh, counteroffensive, what they were going to hope to push Russia back massively out of some of the territories that they'd occupied uh, since 2022. That did not work. Uh, basically, it ground down in trench warfare uh, in, uh, in eastern and southern Ukraine. Um, and the front lines have not moved a whole lot. Um, and to the extent that they have, uh, the Russians have been advancing. And yes, over the weekend, they 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 took a strategic town in eastern Ukraine called Avdivka. Um, the debate around this has been, um, you know, should the U.S. and Europe continue to support uh, Ukraine? Uh, and importantly, to what end, right? The Europeans agreed to give Ukraine another $50 billion a year for the next several years. That's basically to keep the lights on in Ukraine. The bigger issue is, can Ukraine get more military aid? And that comes from the US. 
to put this in perspective, the United States has given more than all the European countries combined uh, to, to Ukraine. The United States is the indispensable military uh, supporter of Ukraine. Um, and, uh, you know, at the moment, there's, as you mentioned, in Congress, there's a big debate about, you know, the Republicans have been holding up Ukraine funding, uh, tying it to, uh, to, to, um, to increase security uh, at, at the southern border. There's been a lot of jockeying around that. The basic question on the ground in Ukraine is Ukraine can't continue fighting without more Western aid, right? And uh, so the question is, A, is that aid going to be forthcoming? But B, I think a bigger question underlying all this is to what end? When people talk about Ukraine winning, it's not clear what exactly that means. Does that mean pushing all Russian troops out of every inch of territory that they've occupied since 2022? Does it mean pushing them out of Crimea, which they've occupied since 2014. So it's not entirely clear. And I think part of the issue, right, Republicans in Congress are playing games with the immigration stuff, head of the election, that's obvious. But I think there is kind of a serious question about what people mean when they say, give Ukraine what it needs in order to win. If winning means pushing Russia entirely out of the country, that's not necessarily a feasible option. But if winning means, you know, being armed to the teeth to be able to defend some kind of partitioned Ukraine in the long term, maybe that's more achievable. The problem in Ukraine is that no one in Ukraine wants to give up any territory to Russia. And frankly, why should they? Uh, but the strategic aspect of what's going on may, may start to work against them before long, particularly if the U.S. isn't able to cough up uh, more money for the Ukrainian armed forces. Alex, at the start, it seemed as though if the Russian invasion did not have immediate effect, did not come to an immediate resolution of you know, essentially Ukraine surrendering. It seemed early on that the longer this was drawn out, this may be in Ukraine's favor. But what we've seen recently with a change, obviously, among Zelensky's military officials, um, is your read also that public sentiment, I'll also think about in Moscow, You know, we saw protests early on of the invasion, which seemed unheard of. You know, in, in right. Russia, has public sentiment in Russia and almost internationally seemed to be, you mentioned fatigue, but is there also a potential malaise or something working within the Russian government or even among the people where they're starting to build some momentum toward toward Putin's vision? Well, look, I mean, I, I think, you know, a, a longer conflict favors Russia. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I mean, if it's just about throwing bodies at the front, Russia's got more bodies, right? I mean, this is this is how, you know, a combination of uh, endless uh, ranks of bodies on a really cold winter is basically how Russia's won most of its wars in its history, right? So, uh, you know, r both sides are struggling with like manpower and munitions, but Russia is able to draw on a much deeper supply of bodies and they're also getting weaponry from North Korea and from Iran, which is helping them to plug that gap. The Ukrainian side is a lot more difficult, right? It's a much smaller country. Um, morale in Ukraine is very high about not ceding any territory to Russia. But if you look at the debate about, you mentioned some political divisions within, within Ukraine, and you're absolutely right. One of the big questions is, can does Zelensky think he can pull off a wider conscription, basically another draft? And he's really reluctant to do that because there's a lot of people who, although they don't want to give any territory to Russia, they're also really wary about going into a fight, which looks more and more like a meat grinder. I mean, 
the what Ukrainian troops have been doing over the past two years is absolutely extraordinary. These guys are going into battle with like three weeks of training. This is not like, you know, this is not a uh, super highly advanced and well-trained, you know, standing army, right? I mean, a lot, there are guys like that in the Ukrainian military, but a lot of these guys have been going, rotating in and out from, you know, short on short deployments with minimal training. They come back super traumatized. They have to be turned around, sent back to the front immediately. It's really grim. And there's a lot of Ukrainians, you know, who, who, who will respond badly if they're asked to, you know, be drafted and go to the front. So both sides are struggling with their issues, but I think the longer it goes on, uh, it, it favors Russia just because of the manpower um, uh, issue. And also because in the West, you know, the West doesn't, Russia doesn't, Putin, since you asked, he doesn't have to deal with like serious political fissures over this war anymore, right? I mean, he's running the joint now. He's cleared off obviously Navalny, but also the last time we spoke, we were talking about Yevgeny Prigozhin, right? He's also cleared the biggest military threat to his power. So Putin, you know, there can always be palace intrigue in an autocracy like that. One never knows, right? That's that's what Kremlinology is for. But basically, Putin doesn't have to respond to electoral cycles and alliance politics and, you know, trying to wrangle allies to spend as much as they're supposed to for the main military lines. He doesn't have to deal with that stuff. So I think in a longer, you know, the longer it goes on, it favors Putin, not only because of manpower, but also because of this, the particularities of an autocratic system like that, which is that he just can operate on a longer time horizon. The guy's been in power for 20 years. What's he worried about another 20 months, right? Great point. You know, <clears throat> speaking of Vladimir Putin, um, there was a, uh, I don't know if I want to use this word, but th let's use it. An American journalist that recently went out to go and talk to him uh, in Moscow. If you don't know who this person is, him and I both worked at the same company once upon a time, that's Tucker Carlson. You wrote an article that said Tucker Carlson went all the way to Moscow for that, and it had a couple of question marks there. I, I don't wanna necessarily get into the interview, although I allow you to get into it if you want in your response, but I do want you to hear something that Tucker recently said at the World Government Summit that happened in Dubai. And by the way, I mean, nobody knows more about government than Tucker Carlson, right? That's why you invite him to your conferences. Um, so I want you to listen to something that he said to the moderator who was asking him about the interview and him not pushing back on some of the things that Putin said in the interview. Now, remember, uh, Putin's uh, English is as good as my Russian. So obviously there was a translator in the mix uh, with the interview with Tucker. But I want you to kind of hear what he said. And it's drawn the iron. It's been making the rounds on social media. So take a listen to this. You should challenge in, in, in the rules of an interview, and you're a master in, in, your, in your business. Uh, it's not for me to give you a lecture about that, but you should challenge some ideas. For instance, uh, you didn't talk about freedom of speech in, in Russia. You did not talk <laughs> about Navalny, about assassinations, about, about the restrictions on uh, opposition in the coming uh, elections. I didn't talk about the things that every other American media outlet talks about Why? exclusively. Yes, this because is my those question. are covered, and because I have spent my life talking to people who run countries in various countries and have mm. concluded the following, that every leader kills people, including my leader. Every leader kills people. Some kill more than others. Leadership requires killing people, sorry. That's why I would want to be a leader. Um, that press restriction is universal in the United States. I know because I've lived it. I you know, asked my former, you know, I, I've had a lot of jobs. Um, and I've done this for 34 years and I know how it works. And 
Um, there's more censorship in Russia than there is in the United States, but there's a great deal in the United States. And so, you know, at a certain point, it's like people can decide whether they think, you know, what, what countries they think are better, what systems they think Sir, are better. I, I, I just I, want to know what he thinks. That was yes. the whole point. So there's a lot there and maybe like a tiny fraction, very tiny fraction. I agree with. We'll get into that in the wrap. But the biggest thing that I've always said about Tucker Carlson, and again, I am not six degrees of Kevin Bacon separated from Tucker Carlson. I can get Tucker Carlson's phone number tomorrow and have a conversation with him. I know somebody, Nick and I both have a mutual friend that is very close with Tucker Carlson. My argument has always been the pot committed part of this. This is a poker term. You have a pair of aces. You have top pair. You make the bet. The flop comes out. It's a king. It's a 10. It's a five. You have the top pair, but somebody's betting into you, but you feel like you're the top pair, A, and B, you are pot committed. That's your money. So you have to go do that. He has to wake up every morning and he's got to do that type of content. Does, is he conservative? Sure. Does he feel the same way about some of these things? No, because he knows now that he's on his own doing content on X and stuff like that. He has to play to this extreme core that will gain him the views and, you know, the monetary gain from that. That aside, although I would love your take on that. What did you make of the interview and what he said there about leaders kill all the time? And that's why I don't want to be a leader. What was your overall takeaways from the interview and what he just said there in that soundbite? Well, look, I mean, a couple of things. He, he said people talk about the rest of the U.S. media talks about these issues constantly. That's true. The U.S. media does talk about it. Uh, the U.S. media, the Western media, uh, has not had an opportunity to ask Putin about it directly. Tucker had that opportunity and did not really take it, right? So I think, you know, he's right that that that, that there's no shortage of, I mean, if you want to find people writing about how, you know, Putin kills Navalny, you, you can ask me, you can read the New York Times, it's out there, right? But when you have an opportunity to sit with a leader like that and put the question to them, even if you know they're not going to answer it, you have the opportunity to put those hard questions, a good journalist takes it. So that's one thing. I think, you know, he, 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 for whatever reason, didn't take that opportunity. And I don't think his explanation in Dubai was satisfactory because it's the difference between talking about things and then having the opportunity to ask. Them. Uh, secondly, uh, the thing about um, leaders kill people, he's absolutely right. Leaders do kill people. Our leaders are killing people as we speak, undoubtedly. Um, that's not an interesting or introspective point to make. That's like a sophomore, like getting stoned and like trying to be deep comment. Like we all kill people, dude. It's, it's so fucked up. That's not the interesting question. The interesting question is why? Why are we killing people? Why are leaders? Killed? What are the reasons? Who is being killed? Right? That's the question you have to ask. And it's a fair question to ask of leaders in the US. Fair question to ask of leaders in France. Fair question to ask of leaders in China. And it sure as hell is a fair question to ask of leaders in Russia. And if you're sitting in front of the leader of Russia and you don't take that opportunity, it's a lost opportunity. You're a loser, basically. Um, so, I, you know, that, that's my take on that. You know, the, the interview was, I mean, uh, you know, I thought it was hilarious that Putin said, let me just start off with the 30 seconds on history and like literally spoke for 30 minutes about like the Varangian princes and the Rurikid dynasty and Yaroslav the Wise's dream. I mean, it was like amazing. I mean, for like Russian history nerds, it was great. It was a highly warped history, uh, right? Like which the point of the history was to say Ukraine is not an, a legitimate nation and Russia has claimed to this land whatever history 
can be debated. History can be interpreted however people like. Um, the biggest problem for me is not that Putin's history is Russia, Russo-centric, right? Everyone has their own version of history. Problem with his history is that in every single one of his answers and in the history that he gave, it's as though there's not a single other country or people anywhere in the entire world except for the U.S. and Russia. There's no agency of anybody outside of the U.S. and Russia. So the Ukrainians don't have any agency. The countries that wanted to join NATO after the 1990s, they didn't have any agency of their own. They were just forced into it by the U.S. That's the problem with his worldview, I think. Uh, the main problem with his world is he sees it exclusively as like great powers decide what happens. And I mean, you can see he wants to he wants to uh, conclude a peace treaty about Ukraine by talking to the U.S. Right? He's like, yeah, I would love to talk to Joe Biden about peace in Ukraine. It's like, well, what about the Ukrainians? Right. That's that's the big issue. So that, that was my 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 take on, on a lot of the stuff that he said. But as someone who follows him closely, he didn't he truly didn't say anything new. I mean, it may have been new for a lot of people to hear it. Uh, in the U.S., but there was not a whole lot of uh, new material there in what in what he said about history or his grievances about NATO expansion or how he feels that the U.S. has treated Russia unfairly, which is not entirely untrue, but um, certainly doesn't justify the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, not a whole lot new there. I thought it was amazing that he um, that he uh, the power move he pulled on Tucker when Tucker said, um, "So who who blew up Nord Stream?" and he said, "You did." And Tucker said, "Well, no, I was busy that day, or whatever it was. It was very funny." And then, and then, and then Putin just dropped the dossier on him. And was like, uh, "No, uh, I understand that you tried to. It, it was the CIA, an organization that I believe you tried to join at one point, but were rejected." Well, anyway, they're a pretty good organization. It was just like, it, it was great. It was pure, like you know, uh, former KGB mind game stuff. And Tucker was just like, got totally sunned by the whole thing. He was just sitting there, like, "What?" I thought that was an amusing moment in an otherwise uh, somewhat boring interview. Alex, turning to a more serious reporter, you know, we think about Evan Gerskovich right now. Um, and in general, you've talked on this show about the challenge of truly being informed in Russia because of state controlled media. What is there any hope for any form of independent journalism in Russia or for people within the country to truly understand what's going on? Um, and I alluded to this earlier with the protests at the start of the invasion what seems to be potentially a malaise or something that may be brewing in an acceptance among the Russian people. But where do you stand right now with obviously a journalist still being trapped there, but in general, the hope of the potential for journalism thriving in, in Russia at this point? It's extremely bleak. I mean, Evan Gershkovich was, was, was reporting on national security issues in Russia, obviously. And that's why they picked him up and arrested him and said, you're a spy, because from the Russian perspective, anyone who's looking into that stuff is a spy. Um, it, it's it's very difficult. There, there is a small handful of Western journalists who are still doing very good work in Russia. Steve Rosenberg at BBC is absolutely one of the best. Um, and he asks really hard questions when he gets a chance to sit down with 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 with, with these guys. He did a phenomenal interview with Ale um, Alexander Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, a couple of years ago, which is worth which is worth watching. Um, but in general, um, it, it's for for Russians, it is extremely hard to get any reliable news at all. Um, as I said, two thirds of Russians rely on TV primarily for their news, and TV is completely state controlled. Um, and you know, there's there there's online stuff, and Telegram has become a big source of. I'm not sure if I would call it news, but I would say information at least. 
Um, but it's very difficult. It's an extremely atomized society. It's very re repressed um, uh, politically. Uh, protests are almost impossible uh, to uh, to hold. And and one thing I think is interesting also, you know, the casualty figures are in like the the six figures in Russia, right, from this invasion, which you know proportionally is like more than the U.S. lost in Vietnam. It's the most deadliest war in in you know it, since World War II, basically for Russia. Uh, worse, worse than Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, you don't see a whole lot of uh, response to that. And I think there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, a lot of the people who are doing the dying are from remote or poor regions of Russia. I mean, not unlike who, like a lot of people who were in the U.S. military when we first sent to Iraq and Afghanistan, right? This was not like, you know, the elite children from Moscow and St. Peter. I mean, in our case, you know, the, 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 the coastal elites, right? Um Similar situation in Russia. So a lot of the people who are doing the dying are not from the centers of power. Um, and it's a very atomized society. Again, it's hard to it's hard to build momentum towards protest, right? Particularly when it's easy to be tarred as an agent of the West and all this stuff. So I am not particularly optimistic um, uh, on, on, on that front. And to bring it back to what we started talking about, you know, the loss of a opposition leader like Alexei Navalny again he was not super popular but his 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 role was to be a force of hope that there could be something that could challenge putin someday and that's why putin killed him but that's also why uh a lot of you know more educated cosmopolitan russians who truly wanted to see a different russia really believed in navalny um, and i think that dream is in a deep freeze now He's the best at breaking this down. You can go check out all his work over at G0media.com, senior editor of the G0 Daily, which I get all the time in my inbox. Alex, I can't thank you enough for hopping on the podcast, giving us a couple minutes. Continued success to you, my buddy. Stay safe. All right. See you. Take care, Nick. Thank you, Mike. All right. Our thank yous there to Alex Clement. Like I mentioned, G0 Media. Go check out all his work over at G0media.com. Fantastic breakdown as always. And if you want to check out the video portion of our interview with Alex, head over to our YouTube channel, type in, can we please talk podcast? We should pop right up audio podcast platforms. You know, them by now, Apple, Spotify, Google shout to everybody that listens to us over on good pods. Shout to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. We can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program, but guests like Alex subject matter experts that break things down. This is why we do this show as always. I am Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Severi. We'll see everybody next time.